Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Being a parent is quite the adventure. Uh, my son is three and the other day we're in the upstairs of our, like we have like a loft that looks down on the first floor and we're playing with his trains. And he picks up one of his trains and he looks at me and immediately I know what he's thinking. I say, buddy, don't do it. And he starts walking his little disobedient baby legs over to the railing. I says, buddy, you need to stop. You need to stop what you're doing. I need you to have good listening ears and stop what you're doing. And he just smiles and looks at me and keeps on walking like, buddy, red light, you need to stop. Do not do what you are about to do. <laughs> over the railing. Okay, that's it. Taking all your trains. So I take all his trains and I put them away and he loses his mind. Daddy, no, no, no. I'm listening. I'm listening. I don't know why when he listening, he goes... But he does. It's super cute and really hard to be mad at. I'm listening. You should have been listening before. Now there are consequences. But, like children, they don't tend to want to listen until they're already in trouble. Children. And kind of also us. Of all the things that God could be known by, of all the titles that he carries, king of kings, lord of lords, creator, sustainer, giver of life, almighty God, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God, of all the titles that God has and can rightly be called, his favorite self-distinction in scripture is father. He chooses to be known and to identify himself by one of the most intimate, powerful relationships that two people can have. For all my life, I've just assumed that this was because God was telling us how close and connected he wanted to be with his people. The more I read through the Bible and look at the behavior of Christians, the more I start to wonder if it's also because we act like a bunch of bratty kids. So we got a Bible or Bible app. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Uh, we have a lot of ground to cover today, so we're going to move very quickly. Uh, it was funny when we first announced, like, hey, we're going to study the book of Hebrews for like eight months. Everybody was like, wow, that's a really long time to do a single book. And I just like, we aren't even scratching the surface. In eight months, that little like tip at the peak of the iceberg, we're barely shaving off of the top of that. There are, in the text that we have to cover today, at least nine sermons that could easily be preached, depending on where you place your focus. And the one that we have, I asked Carol, I'm like, look, I got like 90 minutes of content here. Can we just go for 90 minutes today? And she said, sure, I'll bring the kids in after 30. I said, cool, I'm gonna, sh I'm gonna cut it down a little bit more. <laughs> So we're going to dive right in because we have a lot to cover, but the thing that's important and I want you to know about this is there is so much more to this book than we are ever going to be able to do justice to in the time that we have. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. 
Since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now, this, you'll see this a lot in Scripture. There's a, re- a reference to the heavens being plural. The Jews believe that there were three heavens. The first heaven is the sky or the atmosphere around the earth. The second is outer space. And the third heaven is what we would think of as heaven. It's the presence of God. So he has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Okay, so in the Jewish sacrificial system, on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the nation. And so what he would do is he would go through the temple and he would enter into the Holy of Holies. This was a part of the temple where God's presence dwelt among his people. This place was so sacred that only the high priest was ever allowed to enter only once per year and only for the express purpose of offering this sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. So the Holy of Holies is separated from the rest of the temple by this massive veil that symbolized the separation that exists between God and man because of our sin. So if you remember the account of the crucifixion when Jesus is on the cross, it says he cries out in a loud voice, he surrenders his spirit, and the curtain in the temple was torn in two. That's this veil. So on Yom Kippur, the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies, sprinkling a blood sacrifice on the mercy seat as an atoning action for the sins of the nation. But before the high priest could enter into the most holy of places, he had to first offer a sacrifice for himself. And so what he would do is he would place his hands on the head of a bull and he would confess all of his sins and the sins of his family, which had to be really confusing for the bull. But it doesn't last long because then he slaughters the bull that atones for his stuff and then he's allowed to enter into the most holy place. But before he did, they sewed bells onto the hem of his garment because he was not going into this holy place where the presence of God was to hang out. He was getting in, sprinkling, and getting done. And so the priests who were waiting outside of the veil knew if they heard the bells stop ringing, that meant the high priest had been struck down. And so they had a rope that they'd tied around his ankle that they would then pull him out of the most holy place because if only the high priest can go in and only once a year and the high priest goes in and is considered unworthy in the eyes of God and gets struck down, you can't go in to get him for another year. And in the Middle East desert, that's going to smell, right? They're not going to make enough Febreze in the world for that. So they had a means to get him out. And you can imagine with all of this circumstance going on, like how intimidating that is for the high priest. Like, cool, they're putting bells on so they know if I die. And they're going to pull me out if I do, which is great. But, like, can you imagine how daunting it would be to step through that curtain? Like, in the back, because you know in the back of your mind, you go, did I remember all the sins that I committed last year? Did I confess all of it? Did I skip one? And did I, <laughs> if I did skip one, is it one that's bad enough that God's going to smite me over? Like, that's a big anxiety-inducing, like, trauma in your life. And they had to do this every single year. This image of a high priest is so incredibly important for us to understand. See, Hebrews is the only book in the New Testament that emphasizes the role of Jesus as our high priest. And when we understand this role that Jesus plays in our lives, It changes how we see him. It enhances and enriches our relationship with him when we recognize who he is and what he is doing for us. There's an aspect of Jesus that we just don't get without this image. 
See, for the Jewish people, the high priest was a source of incredible comfort. Because the role of the high priest meant they knew there was someone who was speaking for them, someone who was advocating on their behalf, someone who was offering sacrifices for them. It was like if your life was a ropes course, the high priest was like having a safety net. Something to catch you if you fall. So it gave them this incredible sense of peace and comfort. Just knowing that this high priest existed and that this role was taken so seriously and so much work went into them, it was a great comfort for them. And what our author tells us is your Levitical high priest, man, that is great. He's a great source of comfort. But guess what? Jesus is an even greater high priest. And the comfort and the peace that you can have in knowing that Jesus is the one advocating on your behalf is so much greater than that of some Levitical priest. See, the Levitical high priest had to offer a once-per-year offering. Our high priest offered a once-for-all offering. The Levitical priest had to atone for his own sin before he could atone for the sins of the nation. Our high priest is perfect and without sin. The Levitical high priest, at best, could delay God's wrath against sin for one year. Our high priest put away God's wrath against sin toward his people forever. He is a greater comfort, a greater priest, and a greater role in every way. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Sadly, this is one of those concepts that we take for granted because of the time in history that we were born. But the concept of a sympathetic God was revolutionary at this time. There was no foundation or no concept for this in any place else. The Stoics believed that God was incapable of having emotions because if God felt, it would make him too easy to manipulate. The Epicureans believed that God existed in a realm between worlds, so he was utterly detached from everything going on here. So the idea that God would not just be aware of the things happening in our lives, but that he would care and even go so far as to be sympathetic was an unbelievable thought at the time. And it is one of the greatest comforts of our lives. To know that our great high priest is not some self-righteous dude in an ivory tower wearing fancy silk robes, reading big leather-bound books, looking down his nose at everybody else because he thinks he's better than them and he's never actually lived among them. Our great high priest has suffered, he's struggled, he's endured, he's been beaten, he's been hurt, he's been desperate, he understands, he's been tempted, he knows what it is like to be us. Because he was made like us in every way, and so he is sympathetic to us. We have a high priest who advocates for us, who mediates for us, who speaks to God for us, who understands us and is sympathetic to our struggles. And by the grace of God, that high priest is available to us. Verse 16. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's very difficult for us to understand the significance of this in our individualistic society of self-worship. In a kingdom... There is one king, 
and the king sits on the throne. And you and I are not the king. We are commoners. Commoners don't get to enter into the presence of the king. They don't get to go and stand in the throne room of the king. What the commoners get to do is they get to see the king when he comes out on his palace window and he waves at them from several leagues away and then they spend the rest of their lives telling all their friends about that one time they saw the king off in the distance because that's the highlight of their life. Commoners don't go before the king in a kingdom. And if they did, they never did with confidence. But because of Jesus... We get to enter into the throne room of the royal palace. We get to enter into the presence of God, our great king. We get to go before him. And what do we receive when we go there? Wrath? No. Judgment? No. Punishment? No. Grace and mercy to help in our time of need. The unbelievable, like we can't in our culture even fathom the unbelievable grace that it is to even be able to enter the presence of the king. But not only do we have this grace to enter his presence, but when we do, we receive grace and mercy from him. That is when we enter the presence of God, God actively works on our behalf to help us in our time of need. That should take our breath away. The creator of the universe works to help you in your time of need. How often when we struggle, when we go through hardships, do we just wish we had someone to talk to? Someone who we could open up to, someone who would listen, someone who would care, and someone who would just be sympathetic. How often do we just long in times of pain and struggle for someone who would just understand what we're going through? Church, you have never not had that in Jesus. We have a high priest who understands, who is sympathetic, and who says, come to me, bring your burdens to me, and lay those burdens down. The message of the gospel is in hard times, you do have someone who understands, who invites you. He's not just listening to your problems because he has to. He desires for you to bring your troubles and your struggles to him and lay them at his feet. so that he can give you this incredible gift. But the gift that God gives of his grace and mercy, of his comfort to help in our time of need, is given when we enter into his throne room with confidence. If you do not, if you neglect spending time with God in prayer, if you neglect being open and honest and real with him, if you neglect spending time with God because life is just so busy and I got so many things going on and there's like sports and there's cars that drive around in a circle real fast and there's like Netflix cues that are really getting out of hand and I just, I don't have time to really spend with God all the time. If we neglect spending time with him, we are denying ourselves and depriving ourselves of the gifts that come when we enter his presence. The mercy and the grace that God offers, he offers when we come to him. So church, listen. God is not going to magically make your life easier so that you can go on ignoring him. He offers this unbelievable gift of mercy, of help to those who come and enter into his presence. 
chapter 5. For every high priest is chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset by weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So there's three essential qualities to a priest. They have to be understanding, they have to be sympathetic, they have to be selected. A high priest needs to be able to deal gently and patiently with the imperfections of others. And they need to be chosen by someone, not themselves. They don't get to volunteer. Hey, I think I would be a great high priest. Make me for that role. Because the role of the high priest is a role of humility, not of hubris. Verse 5. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal life to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. All right, so our author connects Jesus to the wonderfully mysterious order of Melchizedek. And this is a point where it's very easy to get distracted. And if we're not careful... We can chase down the rabbit trail of trying to figure out who this mysterious Melchizedek guy is and miss the entire point of what the author is saying. If you read this and your focus and your interest and your pursuit is learning more about Melchizedek, you've missed the entire point of what the author is saying. This is not about Melchizedek. This is about Jesus. Now, there are three, three, there are two things very interesting, very important, relevant about Melchizedek that he's drawing our attention to by connecting Jesus to it. The first is that in Jewish history, Melchizedek's order of priesthood has no known beginning or end, which gives it the appearance of being eternal. And so it became a symbol of something that goes on forever. And secondly, in Genesis 14, we learn that Melchizedek is unique among all priests and that he is also a king. And so what the author is telling us here in this point by talking about Melchizedek is that Jesus is our high priest and our king forever. That he doesn't offer us these gifts and these mercies for a term, for a short period of time, or for a window if you get in while the sale is good. It is offered for us forever. He is an eternal priest and an eternal king. Now the use of the word perfect here does not imply that Jesus was not perfect before his suffering. The word is actually teleos. It means literally complete. And so the idea is that a high priest's role requires him to be sympathetic. And Jesus was made complete and were perfect as our high priest through his suffering. For in his suffering, he's able to be sympathetic to our suffering. So in his suffering, he's complete as our high priest. He becomes the perfect one to go between us and God as a mediator and high priest. For Jesus is the only one who could be the perfect sacrifice. It's his humanity combined with his deity that allows him to be the one that puts away God's wrath against sin so that we are spared the wrath that we deserve and receive in its place the grace and mercy of God. Jesus alone is the one who can bring salvation 
and he brings it to all who obey him. Did you catch that? Did you catch what it says there? Not Jesus brings salvation to all those who believe. Not Jesus brings salvation to all who check the right denomination on the religious box. He does not bring salvation to those who call themselves Christians. It doesn't say he brings salvation to those who repeat a sinner's prayer or who invite Jesus into their hearts because that concept actually doesn't occur anywhere in the Bible. It says he brings salvation to those who obey him. The clearest, truest mark of a genuine relationship with Jesus is the desire to obey him. Because there is nothing in our flesh, nothing in our nature that desires to do what Jesus calls us to do. Which is why the first thing that Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to die to yourself. Everything in us goes against what Jesus commands. Obedience to him is not something that occurs naturally. It occurs by the power of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Desire to obey is not a passive desire. Like, hey, I want to do what Jesus says, but I also really like sin, so I'm just going to go ahead and do that. It's to desire, to seek, to strive, to obey. And when we desire and pursue obedience to Jesus, even in our imperfections and our shortcomings and our failures, we can have confidence to know that we are his because you could not desire obedience to Jesus if you did not belong to Jesus. And Jesus brings salvation to those who strive to obey him. Verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I love this because people tell me I'm aggressive, right? They say, you, you're being really heavy-handed about this. And half the time I just sit there and I'm like, guys, have you read the Bible at all? Like, that's harsh. That's really, really heavy. What he says is, guys, I would love to tell you a whole lot more about this, but I can't because you're a bunch of babies who don't have good listening ears. This is a very strong indictment that we should hear and consider and reflect on very sincerely. <laughs> you had to do it. She did the ear thing with Rowan, so now I'm distracted. I'm not looking at you for the rest of the thing, okay? I'm just going to look around you. <laughs> the expectation of the Christian life is that we're going to mature. That we're going to grow in our knowledge, our understanding, and in our pursuit of Jesus. And the question that each of us should genuinely and honestly ask ourselves is, am I? 
If I look at the person that I am today and I compare myself to the person I was six months ago, do I know more about Jesus? Am I closer to Jesus? Am I more mature in Jesus? Am I serving him more sincerely, spending time with him more regularly? Is he more important to me? If I look at my life today and I compare it to six months ago me, is there any significant visible difference between the spiritual life I had then and the spiritual life I have now? We all come to Jesus as babies. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is when we stay there. Especially for those of you who are parents, you learn very quickly that kids have developmental milestones. There are certain things that they're supposed to do within certain windows of time. It's not a specific date, but like, hey, about this time, they should start crawling. Around this time, they should start talking. Around this time, they should start walking. And as parents, what we do is like, if our kid picks something up like two days before the average, we're like, my kid's a genius. Right? He spoke, and like most kids don't talk for at least two more days. Like, he's a genius. He's smarter than your kid. I'm going to get him tested. He's going to say he's a genius, and your kid's dumb. Ha. Ah. Like, we get weird about that as parents, like all like competitive. Like, the faster our kid talks, the better they are than the other people's kids. Like, it's, it happens. It's weird. But what happens on the other side of that? Our kid's not talking at four months. That's not a problem. We know they're not supposed to be talking at four months. It'd be weird if they were. But if they're four years old, still haven't said a word. As a parent, you're concerned, right? You know why? Growth is natural. Growth is healthy. Growth is expected. And when growth doesn't occur in the reasonable time frame that it should, it's usually indicative of a developmental problem that needs to be addressed. The longer someone goes without maturing in the way they should, the more and more concerning it becomes. Why are we so quick to recognize this in our children's lives and so slow to recognize it in our spiritual lives? We have a generation of churches that are like living in Peter Pan, lost boys, running around, never growing up. This state of perpetual spiritual infancy is tragic. Because either you are growing in Jesus or you are drifting from Jesus. That's the reality of Scripture. Because when Jesus calls you, when he makes you his, he comes and he meets you where you are. But he will not leave you there. Because the Christian life is not a box that we check on a survey. It's a journey with Jesus. And so if we're not moving with him and growing with him and pursuing him, we are getting further away from him. I want to be clear here. If you look at what the author says, he does not say you are slow, like he's picking on some developmental condition that they have. He says you have become slow, dull, static in your hearing. You have become this way. See, what often happens in the Christian life is we come to Jesus and we're all excited and we're all fired up and for like six months we are just sprinting out of the gate as fast as we can to get closer to him. And somewhere around that six-month mark, life gets challenging and all these other things start piling around you and there's resistance and it becomes a lot more work and a lot of times what happens is we just stop moving. And once we're stopped, it's like, ah, this is fine, like I'm good, I'm just gonna... And we become complacent and comfortable. What he's describing here is a spiritual laziness to understand the things of God. We are in an unprecedented time in human history where we have easier, more readily available access to the Word of God than ever before. 
And not just the word itself, but to great free resources to help us understand it. Do we read it? Study it? Meditate on it? Open it at all? There's a reason that we tell you the verses that we're going to teach on. reason that we put them on the screens. So that you can see where we're drawing these things from. Don't let us be your only Bible. Because if the only Bible you get is one that somebody else reads for you, you will never make it past spiritual infancy. And that sounds harsh, right? Man, that's mean, that's heavy. Why you gotta say it like that? Can I tell you how what he says translates? He says to these people, you guys should be teachers. You guys have been Christians long enough that you should have been able to go away to university, get a degree, come back equipped, educated, and trained to lead other people in the things of Jesus. By this time, you should have your own spiritual babies who you are raising up to be children of God in pursuit of him, but you're not doing that because you're still struggling with your ABCs. Man, that's mean. How could he say that to these people, especially when we know what they're going through, right? These are people that have been persecuted, they're suffering, they've been exiled from their homes and their communities, they've been kicked out of their own families, disowned by their parents and their siblings. After all the things that they've suffered and endured now, he's going to come along, really? This is the time to do that and make them feel bad for their spiritual immaturity? Yes. Yes, it is. Do you know why he says this to them? Because he loves them. And when you love someone, you care more about their good than you do their feelings in a specific moment. He says this to them. He calls them out for their immaturity. He challenges them because he loves them and he wants them to grow. And what the author paints for us here is this disturbing picture of men and women crawling around in spiritual diapers, waving their creepy adult baby rattles, sucking on their adult baby thumbs, still drinking milk. And it's a shocking image. It's a disturbing image. And it is meant to evoke a visceral response. It would be like if I came out here and I said, you guys don't know anything about the Bible. You couldn't quote me a single scripture outside of John 3.16. And you went... Oh, yeah? I'll show you. And you went home all week and you just memorized like 10 different verses of the Bible and came back and quoted them all to me to throw it in my face. See? I know more than that. Yeah. That's the point he's going for. He's trying to shock them out of their apathy. He's trying to shock them out of their infancy. He's trying to upset them with where they are so that they will grow. Because he loves them. It doesn't feel very loving to me. No, it is because the storms of life are coming. And what he understands is those storms are going to hurt them so much more because they are defenseless as infants to protect themselves. Life is a storm. Maturity in Jesus is the shelter that we take from that storm. The more you mature in him, the sturdier that shelter is. He calls them out and challenges them to grow because the less mature they are, the more painful and detrimental those storms are in their lives. He says, if you just grow up, 
if you can just mature in Jesus, you won't feel this because he has something so much better. Build your shelter so that it doesn't destroy you when this happens. You need to grow up. So what do we do with that? Anybody in here a counselor? What's the first thing that you have to do? The first thing a person needs in order to make a significant life change? Desire. Nothing changes without an actual desire to change it. Last week was my wife's birthday, so we went up to, to Carolyn's. We go to the, we're going to the theme park, and Rowan is now just tall enough to ride some of the little kid roller coasters. So we get on, he rides his first one, he's loving it, just giggling, laughing hysterically the whole time, like in this hugely life-affirming way that boys laugh. Gets off it and he goes, Daddy, I want to ride that one. <laughs> nope, buddy, that's, you got to be a little bit taller for that one. He goes, okay, can I ride that one? And he points to the big, giant red one that's called the Intimidator. It's like a little thrill-seeking baby. Who wants to ride that one? I'm like, buddy, you're way too small to ride that. He goes, okay. He goes, so the rest of the time we're there, he's pointing, he goes, Daddy, I'm, I'm not big enough for that one yet. I'm not big enough for that roller coaster. But I'm, I'm going to get bigger, and I'm going to ride it. The first step is desire. You have to want it. And the second step is you've got to want it enough to do something about it. Take time to enter the presence of God. Make time at the beginning of your day, at the end of whatever works in your schedule. It doesn't matter when you do it, but make time every day to spend in, the, in prayer and in the Word. And you go, hey, but you know what? It's kind of hard. I don't understand what I'm reading when I read it. Cool. Don't let that be your excuse. Let that be your fuel. The more time you spend in the Word, the more you will begin to understand the Word. So do what you would do if you approached anything else that you needed to understand but didn't immediately. Take notes. Write down questions. Find other believers who are maybe more mature in their walk with Jesus than you are and discuss those notes and those questions with them. Put them into an email and send them to me. I will do everything in my earthly power to help you understand what you're reading so that you can grow in the word but I can't do the reading for you the Christian community is designed to have the more mature pouring into the less mature so that we can all grow closer to Jesus we can help remove hurdles from your growth but we can't do the growth for you you have to do that you have to desire that yourself but let me just tell you something so listen this is the most important thing I'm going to tell you this sounds like a criticism. It sounds like he's calling these people out. You're a bunch of babies. Like, you're like, wow, I'm offended by that. He's not talking directly to me, but I don't like it. In actuality, this is not a criticism. It's an encouragement when you understand why he's saying it. We need to grow up. We need to mature. We need to grow in our knowledge and our understanding of God. That is absolutely the case. Every one of us needs to grow. Because the mercies and the grace and the comfort of God that is offered to us, we cannot appreciate, access, or experience when we remain as spiritual babies. God has built this entire 
theme park filled with incredible rides for us to enjoy. It's time that we stop being happy on the kiddie rides, spinning around on the stupid teacup in a circle all the time, going up and down on the bus. There's so many greater things for us to enjoy in the park that God has created for us to experience. Do you know why Rowan wants to get bigger? It's not because he feels guilty for being a kid. It's because when he looks around that park, he goes, look at all the things that I don't have access to, you, to yet. Look at all the things that I can't do because of my size, because of how little I am. I want to get bigger so that I can enjoy more. I want to get bigger so that I can experience more. God has so many gifts and comforts and joys for us to experience, but we do not have access to them until we meet the height requirement. So grow up. Grow up not because you need to feel ashamed and guilty because you're a kid, but because you're missing out on so many wonderful gifts and comforts that God has for you. Because when you reach that final height, when you reach that point where you can ride all the rides in the park, the storms of this life don't affect you. You don't care. They don't bother you. You become like Paul who says to live is Christ, to die is gain. He goes, I count whatever blessings I have in this life as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It doesn't matter what the world throws at you if you have built yourself a secure shelter in your maturity in Jesus. Church, it is time that we stop denying ourselves the riches of the gifts of God by remaining infants. And we grew in him so that we could experience the trueness of joy and comfort that he gives. So my challenge to you this week, make time. Find a way to carve out 30 minutes a day to just spend with God. Challenge yourself push yourself. Keep on growing. Because the gifts and the joys that come through that growth, you can't even fathom right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that we have to be able to enter your presence to just come before you and to bring our needs and our struggles and our hardships and to know not only do you listen, but you desire for us to come, to lay our burdens at your feet. Help us see the wonder and the joy of this world that you have made for us to enjoy, that we might be dissatisfied with any limitation to experiencing the gifts that you have. Give us a hunger, a desire, and a passion to grow in you. For there is nothing greater in this life than you. Thank you for all that you give us. Thank you for all that you are. We thank you for Jesus and we thank you for grace. Amen.